following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The parts of the Bible that lodged themselves deepest into my mind, and I decided this week that they were Daniel in the lion's den, and David and Goliath, and Jesus calling the disciples to be fishers of men. So my challenge this week was, how do I teach this passage in a faithful way that avoids the great danger of familiarity? Because familiarity is deadly for wonder and for freshness when you come to a biblical text. Uh, I face that struggle every day as I come to my daily readings. There's this tendency just to kind of rush through a passage and not think about what it really means. Uh, but then on, the, so that was Monday and Tuesday, I kind of spent a lot of time stressing about what I was going to say and thinking how would I tackle them. But on Wednesday, it was like a light bulb went on for me. And I suddenly realized that there was a unifying theme in these three short passages. And it's this, it's the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. And you might think, well, that's obvious. But I've got a very slow brain. It takes a long time for it to work. So this morning, we're on the authority of Jesus. So remember after Jesus uh, rose from the dead, and just before he ascended to heaven, he said to his, to his disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that was after his death and resurrection, but even during his, the time of his ministry, you constantly see the authority of Jesus. So think of the New Testament like this. Jesus comes into the world and he announces that his kingdom is near, it's it's, it's at hand, it's present. Now, you can't have a kingdom without a king. Uh, and th- what the point is that the world's right, rightful king had arrived and his impact in the world is remarkable. So during the days of Jesus on the earth, there was this radical invasion of the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is the light of the world. Now, if we think about this in terms of the Bible's big story... Ever since Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, uh, the world has been plunged into darkness. It's a world characterized by sin, by sickness, by disease, by demonic oppression, by wars, by famine and death. But in time, God singled out uh, one man called Abraham and his descendants, and he established a nation, Israel, and through that nation, some of the effects of the fall were, were pushed back. He had something of what some commentators call a partial kingdom in the nation of Israel. But when the Son of God appeared into that nation at Bethlehem, as we've just thought about over Advent, we see the effects of the, of the fall undermined more than at any other time in history. So light comes into darkness and it is dispelled. Truth displaces lies. People are healed. Uh, Demons are banished and people are fed. You see, the days when Jesus walked the earth, they were a taste of heaven on earth. The kingdom of God invaded the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of sin. So Jesus arrived, King Jesus, and the world will never be the same again. So Jesus' life and actions were life-changing at the time. And of course, they ensured our redemption and the final destruction of Satan and of demons. But the... The works of Jesus when he came to Israel in the first century 
they kind of, not only do they, do they achieve redemption for us, um, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also look ahead to a time when the will of God will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. They're kind of pointing ahead to a world where there will be no more sin, no more injustice, no more suffering and no more pain. And we look forward to that with great anticipation. So the events of the Gospels, they have value in their own right, of course, because they secure redemption for, for, for us, those who believe in Jesus, but they also look ahead to a time in the future. So coming to Mark, um, right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, he introduces Jesus as the Son of God, and then he takes time to show us evidence that this truly is the Son of God, that the Son is a great king, he's the great king. And so last week, as Pastor Tim preached, Jesus is baptized and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Father in heaven declares his love for his Son, his beloved Son. Uh, In some sense, that moment is a kind of coronation for Jesus. And out of that event, the authority of Jesus is revealed in his victory over Satan's temptations. But it's also revealed in encounters with people. So King Jesus possesses authority... And in our passage, we see this, this authority in action in three ways. So here are my three, three headings. Uh, well, three instances of the authority of Jesus. And then I'm going to do some application with my fourth heading. So my first heading is authority to compel. This is verses 14 to 20. My second heading is authority to heal. Sorry, authority to teach, 21 to 22. And then my third heading is authority over demons, 23 to 28. And then my kind of summary of what I'm going to say, I'm going to think about under the heading of Jesus is Lord. So my first heading is authority to compel, 14 to 20. So let's read the text. Um, In fact, I'm going to start in verse 16, not 14. This is Mark chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, of, uh, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here we have this scene that we need to imagine. Jesus walks along the shores of Lake Galilee and he sees these fishermen. So if we read the other Gospels as well as this account, we know that this wasn't the first time these men had seen Jesus. They already knew about him and his teaching. Now, I've heard lots of preachers over the years say that Jesus chose poor and ignorant men to be his first disciples. Um, and likely they were neither of those things, neither poor nor ignorant. Uh, such ideas uh, fed the narrative of liberal theology in the 19th century that these men, men like Peter and John, couldn't have written the New Testament because they would have been illiterate. Very likely they were not illiterate. So on this idea that they were poor, uh, Lake Galilee is a, a, a lake that is um, stocked full of fish and very likely they had a thriving fishing bi- uh, business. And Mark tells us that uh, 
that when uh, Jesus called James and John, they left their father Zebedee with the hired men. Now, anybody who can hire other people to work for them are unlikely to be dirt poor. Neither were they likely to be ignorant. You know, the, the region of Galilee in northern Israel was a kind of major cultural and trading center. It was looked down on by those in Jerusalem as being kind of godless. But if you wanted to make money, people would go to northern Israel because there was this, this quite wealthy trading center. And people from across the known world came there to do business. So almost certainly these men whom Jesus called would have spoken certainly Aramaic and most likely Hebrew. And quite likely they would have spoken Greek as well because Greek was the lingua franca of the time. And there was so much Roman influence in the region that very, it's quite possible that they also spoke Latin as well. So these weren't poor, ignorant fishermen. It's a kind of sentimental myth that we have to strike from our minds. And Jesus sees two pairs of brothers. The first was Simon and Andrew, and they're casting their nets into the lake, and he calls them to follow him. And the call is a kind of permanent one, and it's a literal call. It's not metaphorical. And he tells them, tells them that from now on they will catch fish and not men. And Simon and Andrew, they leave their nets behind and they follow him. A little further along the shore, he sees James and John. Uh, they are not fishing this time. They are mending their nets. And he calls them to follow him and they immediately leave, the, leave their nets and they follow him. Now, this morning we could think about what it means to be a fisher of men, but I'm not going to do that. I want to think about what we learn about Jesus from what happens here. But before we do that, we need to carefully note that this was Jesus' call on men who would form the group of his 12 disciples, and later they would become known as the 12 apostles. And we need to remember that this was a pretty unique call. So Jesus had lots of other disciples who didn't leave everything to follow him, and they were still his disciples. But they weren't part of the twelve. You know, what I'm getting at is that Jesus doesn't call everybody out of their profession or away from their business to what we might unhelpfully call full-time ministry. This was his call on four men who were literally to be with him all the time. They had a special calling to lead and to preach and to work miracles. Uh, And later on, three of them would write scripture. So let's keep that context in view. This was a pretty unique call for, the, for these four men. Uh, and the reason this matters is because some people spend years thinking something like this, that if they really had enough faith and they would give up being an electrician or a high school teacher and serve Jesus full time, the really spiritual ones, they give every, everything up and they follow Jesus. But that's not the lesson, lesson of this passage. You can serve Jesus and your neighbour faithfully as an electrician or as a high school teacher or as a banker or as a mother and homemaker or as a carer to your elderly father. But what we do need to see this morning is the assumption of Jesus that he has the right and the authority to demand something extraordinary of us. I think that's the lesson. You see, these men leave their perfectly good business and in the case of James and John, they abandon their father to fish, uh, to fish, to leave him to fish without them. So just who does Jesus think he is? What gives him the right to compel? To control the lives of these men? 
even to radically disrupt their lives. Well, he's the king of the true kingdom, the kingdom that will one day displace all others. Now, it's interesting to, to, uh, to note that the approach that Jesus had to discipleship was not the norm in New Testament Israel. You see, in this culture, and there were many disciples and there were many masters uh, who had disciples, but if you wanted to be a disciple, then you were told to find a rabbi who had to approve you before you could sit under that rabbi. You had to ask permission to be their disciple. The point is that the learner, the disciple, took the initiative. That was the protocol in Israel at the time. But not with Jesus. You see, he takes the initiative to call and control the lives of other people. He, he commands the obedience of these men. He didn't offer them a contract or ask for some kind of written consent, as we might expect to have today. And his call would take precedent, precedence over their family allegiances. Now, that was extremely countercultural for this time, because in this kind of culture, then your loyalty to your family came first, as it does in many countries today. Now, the claim that Jesus has absolute authority over lives has not changed in the years since this happened 2,000 years ago. You see, King Jesus still demands that we submit to his rule. We not... We may not be called away from our business or our nation to another nation, or, although many of, many of us may have been. But the point is that following him will certainly involve great changes to how we live, because he demands to be first in our lives. He is King Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ is not looking for your vote. He's not looking for your opinion. He demands to be your Lord. And you and I are not the centre of this world. He is the centre, and his kingdom is the only kingdom that will last forever. I remember speaking at a conference uh, in England on sexuality about six years ago, and I had this very interesting encounter with this man who came to see me at the end. He said to me, all my life, secretly, I've been attracted to men, not to women. And I've never forgotten what he said to me next. He said, but Jesus is Lord of my life, and I know that my same-sex attraction is wrong in his sight. And so every day, I recognize that Jesus Christ has, has, uh, has called me to purity, and I put to death the lusts of my body because I'm faithful to Jesus, who is my Lord. Now, that's radical, isn't it, in an age where self-expression and being true to yourself and your feelings, especially your sexual desires, is everything. You see, this man knew the same Jesus that called Andrew and Simon and James and John. Jesus demands to be first, that we bend everything to his terms. Now, these men pull out of their family business. Of course, they did go back to fishing for a short time later on, but I'm not sure that was the plan of Jesus for them. And, you know, pulling yourself out of your family business is not a big deal for a Westerner. We're encouraged to make our career decisions in spite of what our family wants us to do. It's not a big deal. It might be in Thailand or in China, for example, to, uh, to pull yourself out of your family, uh, your family responsibilities. But this same Jesus Christ 
demands to be Lord of, as we've thought about your sexuality, but also your thought life and your career and your comfort and your bank account. And those things are radical in a Western context. So today we might call this kind of thing fanaticism. And our reply would be no. This radical call to be a follower of Jesus Christ is just the way that things are in a Jesus-centered universe. Jesus Christ never settles for, your, for half of your allegiance. He never does. So here we have the first instance of the authority of Jesus. It's the right to compel, the right to disrupt a life without any explanation or apology, except that he is God, he is Lord of all. My second heading is authority to teach, and this is in verse 21 to 22. So we've had authority to compel, this is authority to teach. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus is teaching. He's in the synagogue in Capernaum. That's where he based himself in the days when he was based around Galilee and northern Israel. So Jesus is not, he's teaching. He's not just a man of action, although you wouldn't know that from reading Mark. Mark is full of immediatelys and it's really a description of his, the things he does, his actions. You need to read Luke and John and Matthew to get the kind of, uh, his teaching as well. But he does teach. And he's not just a man somebody who would seek to to wow the crowds with signs and wonders. He's a teacher. And we ask the question, why does he teach? Isn't it boring to teach when you have the power to raise the dead and to make the blind see and walk on water and turn water into wine? I was once uh, invited to speak in a church in Sarawak in East Malaysia. It's a big church. Uh, and uh, they put a special meeting on for me on the Saturday night. And I think only 10% of the church turned up to hear me. And at the end, the pastor apologized, and he said that, that, that his people were not really looking for someone who could teach. They were looking for someone who could do signs and wonders, and that would bring them in the door. So I didn't really fit the bill for them. But the question is, For Jesus, why did he bother with teaching the people when he could be a a celebrity healer and cure the people of their diseases and feed them with bread every day? And this is the shocking answer. It's a shocking answer for those of us who come from a kind of material culture. Uh, The shocking answer is that sickness and pain and hunger are not our biggest problems. Our biggest problem is that we are lost and we are ignorant, and we are destined for destruction, and we need saving. And for those reasons, we need information. We need teaching. You see, we need to know why the world is here. We need to know who the world belongs to. We need to know what a human being is. We need to know to whom we are accountable. We need to know what makes a life successful as opposed to a failure. We need to know what happens to us when we die. You see, this world desperately needs information. It needs teaching. 
We need truth in a world that is framed by lies because only the truth will set us free. And you see, signs and wonders had a place in the ministry of Jesus, but they don't tell us the answer to those biggest questions of all. Not really. You see, Jesus came to die instead of us in our place. But he also came to explain reality to us, what the meaning of the world is. So he came as God's final uh, and complete prophet. He is king. He's also our priest, but he's also our prophet, speaking the truth about the universe so that we know what the world is about. And when we listen to him, we discover that our greatest, greatest need is to have our sins forgiven and to be reconciled to our creator. And that need eclipses all of our other needs. So what I want us to see is what's wrong with the social gospel? What's wrong with mission agencies that have shifted their emphasis so far that they put human rights and poverty and creation care central to all that they do? Now, don't misunderstand me. Christians must care for the poor and for human rights and for human trafficking and for the unborn and many other things we should care for. But always the proclamation of the gospel must be central. The gospel is good news. It's word-centric. Now, I know that how that works out in practice can be complicated. But we need teaching. We need to teach the words of Jesus because our greatest need is not material, it is spiritual. We need to be reconciled to God. So Jesus teaches, and he expects us to listen to him, to turn to him, to run to him for pardon and new life. So teaching matters. Jesus teaches. He doesn't just work miracles and become some kind of celebrity in Israel who can do these amazing things like some glorified magician. But the second thing I want us to notice is that his teaching is authoritative. We're told this. Uh, the best word I came up with for his teaching is commanding. Jesus has presence. He speaks to people with authority, and the text tells us, unlike the scribes, Jesus wasn't an echo of anybody else. His teaching is powerful. He speaks with this absolute conviction. He speaks as the one who is in charge. 25 years ago, um, I lived in London, and uh, while I was training in theology, I used to tutor Jewish children in huge houses in North London. And I remember being in this particular place and teaching this boy, uh, and the door was open to the next room, and there were about seven Jewish men with all their Jewish kind of regalia, little curls and uh, bits of string that hung down from their hair and all the kinds of things you get with Jewish men. Uh, and they were, they were discussing um, something about Jewish law. Um, and they had the, the Torah open and they were reading it in Hebrew, very impressive. The, their boys would learn Hebrew from a very young age. Um, and uh, as, they, as they discussed some fine point of Jewish law, they constantly quoted one rabbi or another rabbi. Uh, so they would say, Rabbi X said this and Rabbi Y said that. And it was the same in Jesus' day. That's how the scribes taught. They taught by citing others. But one of the things that amazed the people was the way in which Jesus had this authority of his own. He didn't quote anybody. Um, he didn't 
give the five views on a topic. And they weren't used to that. He spoke words that were original and seemingly they, they would cut right through them. They were powerful words. Uh, the word that's used here, um, translated I think is amazed or astonished in the ESV, uh, and the word in the Greek, ekplaso, it really means to strike a person out of their senses. They were shocked at the teaching of Jesus. I find it really interesting how differently words can Im- impact us. Um, you know, words are not just sounds, are they? There's something of us in our sounds, in our words. So some words can pass us by and we hardly hear them. So my wife, when my wife tells me to put out the rubbish, the trash, I kind of hardly hear them. They, they, they don't really make much of an impact in my brain. Uh, other words can leave us amused. Other words are loaded with, with hate or hurt. And we can, we can feel the hate or the hurt, the hurt in the words when, they, when, when they, they're directed at us. We can be shaken by words. Words can be very powerful. And then there are words that can enter our souls and change us forever. And I think that the words of Jesus were like that. They got inside people. They got through their defences. Jesus spoke with authority. Um, you know, you and I understand authoritative words. You know, some parents have this ability uh, to just say something to their children in such a way that, that they don't dare disobey. I wish I had that kind of authority with my children. Uh, when I was in England in September, I went to, for lunch with this couple. And the, the son and daughter were being a bit naughty. And their mother just looked at them. I caught her eye. And, she, and they immediately kind of froze. <laughs> And began to behave. She had that power, just with a look. You know, some people have that, don't they? Don't even need to speak. They have that look of authority. And she looked at them and I thought, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) But, you know, we, we understand authority in other ways, don't we? You see, with preachers, you don't often meet young men who have authority when they preach. You know, you can go to seminary or Bible college and you can learn how to to exegete a text and to apply a good hermeneutic and then to contextualize the passage for today's listeners. And then you can learn to put together a well-structured sermon. But without authority in delivery, it it is likely to be theoretical and powerless. And you know, all the stuff that you learn at seminary, it's useful. But that's not where you get authority from, is it? You don't get authority in the, in the seminary library reading a book. You get authority in all sorts of places, but one of the main places you get is when you trust God in the midst of darkness and suffering. When you trust him in the midst of difficulties and you want to run away, but you stay at your post and you say, here I will trust you and I will believe you in this difficult situation. You know, the doctrines of the Christian faith get burned into our souls not in the, in, in, when we read books, but they, they become burned into us when we stand against temptation and the attacks of the evil one. Uh, and we refuse to give in day after day and we say, I will believe God no matter what happens to me. And I will be faithful to the responsibilities that God has given me, no matter how difficult they are. Uh, so when you hear a preacher or a teacher with authority, you know it. 
And then think of Jesus, but a million times greater. Part of his authority came because he defeated Satan in the wilderness. Of course, most of his authority came because he was God in the flesh. But he spoke with authority so unlike the scribes. And then my third heading is this, authority over demons. This is 22 to 28. Verse 20, actually 23. I got all my numbers wrong this morning. 23. And immediately there was, in the synagogue a man, so he's teaching. Immediately there was, in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, which is kind of synonymous with somebody with a demon. And he cried out, um, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So we imagine the scene. Jesus is in this synagogue. Uh, and his presence and his, his preaching, his teaching, provoke a man who has an unclean spirit, a demon, and he cries out, what have you got to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It's like this, uh, this is the kind of sense in the original language. What have we got to do with each other? You and I are not compatible. The demon is speaking through the man's vocal cords to Jesus. We're not compatible. Our kingdoms don't mix Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now, it's very interesting to me to note the difference between the response of the people and the response of the demon. To to Jesus, I mean. You see, the people are amazed by his presence, but they don't recognize him in spite of hundreds of years of prophecy uh, predicting that he was going to come, the Messiah, I mean. But the demon does recognize him, and the demon is terrified. The word I thought of was panicked. This demon is panicked by the presence and teaching of Jesus. Uh, You find that kind of reaction right through the gospel accounts when this thing happens repeatedly. So here in Mark, interestingly, we have the first testimony to the identity of Jesus, and it comes from a demon. It's ironic, isn't it? They knew him, the Holy One of God. And what was the reason? How did the demon know Jesus? Well, uh, the Son of God is the creator of the universe. He created all things invisible and invisible. And once he created this being, this demon, who was at one time, I would imagine, a beautiful and noble angel, he would have known Jesus long before Lucifer led him in rebellion. But the reason for its panic, than if you call a demon he or it, I shall call it it and it. But the reason for its panic is that seemingly it felt safe here, hidden away. And demons are often hidden, aren't they? They often uh, hide behind religion, which is what he's in the synagogue, hiding away in this particular man, a man who's in the synagogue. Um, And seemingly it felt safe uh, in its own domain, um, far from God's presence, and then the mighty son of God shows up. This is, this is not what this demon is used to. 
So it panics. I suppose as well that, that demons know that Jesus is their judge. And that's why they scream in fear. Uh, he recognizes them and they recognize him. They can't hide from him. James chapter 2 tells us that demons believe in Jesus and they shudder. Well, they believe in God and they shudder. Uh, and demons know that they are heading for the lake of fire. When the lake of fire is mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 or 22, um, it says that the, the lake of fire was created for Satan and his angels, fallen demons. And they know that Jesus will be their judge and he has the power to send them to hell or into the lake of fire. So demons seemingly have no possibility of redemption unlike, uh, unlike human beings. From everything we know about scripture, there is no possibility that they will be forgiven for their rebellion. And so, uh, terrified by Jesus' appearance, they want to know why he's invaded their kingdom. They want to know if their hour of destruction is near. And what happens next is a demonstration of Jesus' power over demons. And he says, he, just, he doesn't communicate particularly with this demon, he just says, be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulses and cries out with a loud voice and it comes out of him, out of the man. So we could talk a lot about demon possession and how we should respond to that today, but that's another sermon. I'm sure many of you have seen this happening. I was in a meeting, Christian meeting when I was about 12 years old and there was a lady with an evil spirit and she was delivered from it in front of a thousand people. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I've never forgotten it. Um, and the serenity on her face after she'd been released from this demon was incredible. But that's another sermon. But what I want us to see here is the authority of the Son in action. So here is King Jesus, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And it says that the people are amazed. I imagine their eyes as wide as saucers, just amazed at what's happening. And they say to one another, who is this that even the unclean spirits obey him not very much further along in Mark when Jesus calms the storm the disciples say what kind of a man is this even the wind and the waves obey him can you see Mark is driving us to conclude that this is the son of God and the fame of Jesus spreads throughout the region so we see the authority of Jesus in in three ways we see the power to compel we see the power to compel lives We see his power to teach and we see power over demons. So fourthly and finally, here's my application. If I was to ask you what the most significant phrase in the history of the world is, you might come up with different things. You might think of the the slogan of the French Revolution, liberty, fraternity and equality. Or maybe Karl Marx's phrase, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Or you might think of René Descartes. He said, I think, therefore I am. Or Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Or Todd Beamer, who led the uh, assault on the hijackers on Flight 93. He began his assault with, let's roll. But let me suggest that the most significant phrase in the history of the world is this, Jesus is Lord. It's much more than a phrase, it's a reality. 
You see, the church was founded on those very three words. It was founded on the words, he is risen. But him rising from the dead was confirmation that he is Lord of the universe. You know, when we thought about 1 Peter back in the summer, we thought about the early Christians who were living in the Roman Empire and they were persecuted or the beginnings of persecution were coming. And one of the reasons for their persecution was that they refused to confess that Caesar was Lord. How could they do that? Because they knew that Jesus Christ was Lord. The man who who had lived a few decades before, whom they worshipped, wasn't just some, well he wasn't just, he wasn't some local deity to be added to a long list of Greek and Roman and Canaanite gods. He didn't kind of join the queue at the end to get his share of the worship. He was Lord over all gods and all principalities and powers. You see, those early believers, and this is the testimony right throughout history, is that the, the, the message of Christianity centers around a declaration that Jesus Christ is the most powerful being in the universe, and it's a universe that he has created. He is Lord of all. And in the book of Acts, the message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost was that Jesus has risen from the dead. And then he said, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord. That means that he is higher and greater than any other power. Uh, when I was a child, I used to sing the words of Charles Wesley uh, about um, that he has a name that is high over all in hell and earth and sky, angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. You know, I think for some of us, and I include myself in this, our minds are so shaped by a materialistic worldview that we find these things difficult because we kind of shy away from the supernatural. So uh, the time that helped me most in my life was when I spent six years in Africa. Uh, and the background of most of my, many of my students, my African students, was animism. Uh, that belief, that the belief that behind the visible world is an invisible world of all kinds of spirits and devils that, that control the visible world. So behind the visible world is an invisible world of spirits. They might be demons, they might be the spirits of your ancestors. And what you have to do in life, uh, uh, to get, you have to get blessings and avoid curses, and you do that by appeasing the spirits, by making sacrifices or making bribes, and normally you need the services of the witch doctor who has is this kind of intermediary between the visible and the invisible world. Um, there is a risk of simplification in saying this uh, this morning, and some of you will know more about this than me, but I think roughly you have three types of cultures in the world. Uh, you have guilt and forgiveness cultures, which underpin the Judeo, or are, are shaped by the Judeo-Christian worldview, guilt and forgiveness cultures. You have shame and honor cultures that you have, say, in Thailand or in China. And then you have fear and power cultures. And animism produces fear and power culture, uh, produces fear and power. It is a fear and power culture. And the result um, of animist, an animistic worldview is fear and fatalism. So during my days in Africa, I I noticed that by and large, the Christians I had dealings with didn't talk so much about 
the Christian gospel in legal terms, like we might do from, say, the book of Romans or the book of Galatians. And of course that's correct. We are legally acquitted of our sin. But these Christians I met, they talk less about, in, about the gospel in legal terms, and they talk far more about Christ's power and authority. Uh, you see, on the occasions when I went into African villages out in the bush, uh, I found people who were highly sensitized to the powers of evil. They seemed to sense the powers of evil. Uh, and I suspect that they weren't a figment of their imagination. So the children would wear, the children would wear um, charm bracelets to ward off evil spirits. Uh, and the most important person in the village would be the witch doctor. They would need his protection. Uh, they would fear the spirits that lived in the forest. Um, and when they gave their testimony, repeatedly there was this refrain that came from them, that they came to Christ to be delivered from evil powers. And I'm telling you that because the message of Christianity is that Jesus is Lord over all other powers, human and spiritual. Through his death and resurrection, he disarmed principalities and powers, we're told in the book of Colossians. He defeated death, death that keeps human beings in fear all of their lives, we're told in the book of Hebrews. And when he's... And, and having defeated principalities and powers, disarmed them, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus has been given a name that is above all other names. You see, the message of our passage is just one piece of a whole narrative in the New Testament that reminds us that Jesus Christ has no rivals. To compare Jesus to Muhammad or to Buddha or to Moses is just folly. He is Lord, he's the creator of the universe. He's the one who would bring history to an end. He has no rivals in terms of power. In time he will challenge all of his, he will, he will put down all challenges to his rule and every knee will bow to him voluntarily or involuntarily. He is the king of the universe. He is hidden now but one day he will be revealed on the day that he returns for a second time. He is the Lord. But what about the Western world, where many of us are from, um, the witch doctors and charm bracelets are not the issue, but materialism and relativism and atheism are. Mesem is the kind of creed of the West, isn't it? The me, myself and I generation. You know, in that kind of context, the powers of darkness are just as real. Uh, they just, the powers of darkness manipulate the thinking of, of, of people in the world. They underpin the ideas of the West. They kind of, they, they pull the strings of our collective thinking. So no longer do we say in my country, the United Kingdom, Caesar is Lord. We just crown ourselves as Lord at the centre of the universe. Our needs, our rights, our preferences, our morality, our entitlements. And so we too need to remember that Jesus is Lord over all the false ideas that control our lands. If heaven and earth will pass away before Christ's words do, you can be sure that the thinking of the Western world will pass away before the words of Jesus do.
The claim that we Christians make is that Jesus is the reason why there is not nothing. He is the reason why there is everything. He is the reason why the world exists. And his words will trump all other words. In fact, they are so weighty they will last for all eternity. Heaven and earth, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He will wrap up history and his judgment will determine the, determine the success and the failure of every single life. So Jesus is the one in whose name we meet this morning. And if he is Lord, then that reality is our greatest motivation for mission. That reality needs to be proclaimed to the whole world. You see, we must care about the lost. But the first motivation for mission is that Jesus must be honoured and given his rightful place in all the world. His fame and his beauty and his love for sinners must be proclaimed because he is the Lord of all. He has a claim in every life, and no one has the right to live outside of his domain. So this morning we see Jesus and his authority in three ways. We've seen his authority to compel. We've seen his authority to teach. And we've seen his authority over demons. He is Lord. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.